We look at ultra endurance athletes as these beacons of health and well-being, and in some ways they are. You measure their VO2 max or their lean body mass, their lactate thresholds, or their resting heart rates, and they're world class. But then you start looking at some of these other things, particularly around psychological health, and the numbers tell a different story. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend, Brad Stolberg. Brad, how are you doing this lovely morning? I'm doing well, Steve. How how are you doing this morning? You know, I'm doing all right. We're, uh, we're just trying to get through the day and survive the lack of sleep and, you know, keep on functioning. So, so you, you, you still got um, Hazley... Hazley Grace is still struggling to sleep, huh? Well, it's you know it's a hit or miss. You know, the other day she she set a PR. She made it to four a.m. on one. Wow, you know from one like stretch, ten thirty to four a.m. It was it was a great stretch. But like most of us, when we PR, we kind of regress the next day. So the next day she only made it to ten thirty to midnight on her first stretch. But you know, at least we know now she's capable of it. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna push her to keep PRing. Are y'all doing the divide and conquer approach, or are you still doing the moral support approach? Well, we didn't do the divide and conquer when she made it to 4:30, but when we now that she's back to not PRing, we're dividing. It's the only way to do it. Got to do the divide and conquer. Got to do the yeah. divide and conquer. One one day we should just have a parental poll. I'm I'm surprised there hasn't been research on this. Maybe this is, but the best way to handle sleep deprivation. Well, and I think that I think that what happens is, and why I'm trying to help you out here from my um my my sample size. That's probably now like up to twenty. So you know, underpowered on the scheme of all parents across time. But it seems that for first children, the Moral support is a real thing, and um, both parents are just waking up. And uh, then for the second child, the parents decide, well, this is dumb. We need to divide and conquer as best as possible and uh, and then get into a routine pretty swiftly, you know, maybe right out of the hospital where you got one parent doing the first stretch and then the other doing the second stretch. Certainly once a baby starts using a bottle, that makes sense. Uh yeah, it's it's the bottle that is, I mean, that is probably the key there. But I hear you. Maybe we'll do an informal study. Listeners, send us your parenting sleep strategy. <laughs> did you divide and conquer? Did you, you know, did you say, hey, you know, we're in it together. Maybe your environment didn't allow you to divide and conquer. Maybe you have a ton of kids and you're like, divide and conquer. What are you talking about? We divide and conquer everything because we have five kids running around. Um, send us your strategies because, you know, Brad and I don't have all the answers on this. No, but speaking of a lot of kids, I do have one strategy, which is um, our almost six-year-old now, you know, all the bedrooms are upstairs. So he's a, he's a wonderful pawn in the sleep game because he and I can be in cahoots and it can be, you know, Caitlin, like it's not really fair to Theo that he's not sleeping, but he doesn't want to sleep in the basement alone. So maybe Theo and I should go sleep in the basement so he's well-rested for school. Mm, look so at that's that. that's. I hope Caitlin's not listening. Oh. I'm sure, I'm sure she'll her phone will blow up with texts from people who are. But um, we're not actually outside. we're not actually in cahoots. I have not told Theo to purposefully stay awake <laughs> so that we can go into the basement. He's just genuinely awake because Lila's ragers are just getting louder and louder as she gets older and older. I I think there's some uh, some interesting parenting going on. Brad's in cahoots with his his six year old. So. You know, I don't know what that says about you, Brad, but we'll 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 see, I guess. Well, you know what, Steve, having your first kid is a enormous life change. And uh, you know that the average adult goes through 35 or more major life changes, having kids, getting married, getting divorced, graduating school, starting school. 
getting a new job, leaving a job, getting promoted, winning a medal, losing, having surgery, meeting a new best friend, distancing from a friend. The list goes on and on and on. So uh, how do you get through all this change, Steve? You know, the best way I know how to now is pick up a copy of your latest book, Master of Change, which I wish I had when I was going through some of the biggest changes of my life, such as changing jobs or, you know, going through whistleblowing against a a Goliath of a company. If I had your book, I would have done it much better. Yeah. So Steve and I, neither of us like change. We both like stability for no other reason than we're humans and humans like stability. Yet we live in a world where everything is always changing, including us. And, uh, you know, the brain can only be thrown for a loop for so long before it starts to search for answers, which is what I did with a lot of help from Steve over the last couple of years. The result is Master of Change, the New Growth Equation book. Over 2,000 people have already pre-ordered, so it's just really incredible. We're both floored. My publisher is floored, so thank you. If you haven't yet pre-ordered, you can do so. The link is in the show notes. You get eight free bonuses, including a mini online masterclass guides to rugged flexibility, guides to change in parenting, guides to change in sport, guides to change in your career. Um, People have been really digging the pre-order material. It ensures you'll get a limited first edition copy of the book the day it comes out. It's available on audio, Kindle, or hardback. The bonuses are yours. doesn't matter the format. So head over to the show notes and pre-order Master of Change if you haven't yet. All right. Get your copy. You are not going to regret it. Um, All right. Well, speaking of change and doing difficult things, this week we're going to talk a little bit about our review that came out in the Journal of Sports Medicine that looked at mental health and ultra-endurance runners. Now, if you're hearing this and you're saying, oh, I'm not a a runner or ultra-endurance runner or even an athlete, what does this have to do with me? Well, we're going to get to that in a little bit. But Brad, if you want to give us the rundown of what this study found, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so there was a study published in the Journal of Sports Medicine, um, as Steve had mentioned, and I'm just now pulling up the big findings. All right, here we go. So it was a review on mental health in ultra-endurance runners, and a review means that it is a study of studies, so it has a pretty significant sample size. And uh, I'll just read these stats, Steve. So between 32 and 62% of ultra runners struggle with eating disorders. Between 11.5 and 18.2% of ultra runners struggle with exercise addiction, which is, to be really clear, continuing to do something despite significant negative consequences on your life. 18.6% have depressive symptoms. Now, this is an interesting one because the base rate for depression in America, when you at least combine it with anxiety, is right around 20%. So I actually didn't find this stat in particular to be too concerning. Um, But the base rates for eating disorders and exercise addiction are much, much lower. And um, 25% have sleep disturbance, which again, I don't know the base rates on that. My guess is it's pretty high because most people in the West don't sleep very well. Um, but at the very least, it's not like ultra runners are sleeping better than most people and perhaps worse. But I think the two things to really key in on here are the disordered eating and the exercise addiction. Um, because again, those stats are much, much higher than what you'd expect in the general population. So I think it's this conundrum because we look at ultra endurance athletes as these beacons of health and well being. And in some ways, they are. You measure their VO2 max or their lean body mass or their lactate thresholds, or their resting heart rates, and they're world-class. But then you start looking at some of these other things, particularly around psychological health, and the numbers tell a different story. Yeah, you know, to me, it it comes down to, I often wonder on this, is like a a, a chicken and egg problem. (laughs) You know, like, how much is it, self-selection of people struggling within that with some of these things tend to go towards ultra endurance you know 
running or competition um, versus how much of it is like you get involved in the running, et cetera, and then this becomes a contributor. Uh, and I'm not sure if there's been research on that, uh, you know, uh, to give us an answer, but it's, it's something I've thought about a lot because like the nature of ultra endurance running and endurance running in, in general is like it selects for some of these qualities or traits that, you know, are, can be really good, but at the same time they can like get in the way. So we look at thinking of that high rate of uh, eating disorders. I mean, that's crazy high. Um, but it doesn't surprise me too much coming from a running background because like you're dedicated, you care about the, your, your performance, like, and, and you want to control every variable that you can control. It, exactly. Like you, being lean matters when it comes to performance and sustainability and all that stuff. And like, it all kind of contributes to like, Oh, the first round is like, Oh, I'll care about my diet. Like, you know, how I eat matters i'm gonna eat clean i'm gonna eat healthy etc etc you're also numbers based right because if you're in running you're used to looking at mile splits and how many miles you ran and tracking everything so often runners tend to start tracking their diets and calories and all that stuff and well that can again in some ways be a, a healthy way to do things if pushed too far it can push you towards like obsessing over over it and seeing eating as the thing in your mind ruminating on it and going nuts a little bit on it uh, because like, you know, that's par for the course. And I can speak, I don't know your experience, Brad, but I, I don't think I ever had a full-blown eating disorder. Um, but I can, I, there are moments in my life where I can definitely think like, oh, like I was definitely headed towards an unhealthy, like view of food based on my desire to be really good. And, you know, that also came in, in with like, you know, weighing yourself and you could feel the anxiety if your weight went up a couple pounds, even though it didn't really matter. But to you, you've, you know, this was often framed in, or at least for me and other athletes is all often framed as like, oh no, this is my race weight. And now I'm not at my race weight weight. And you feel that anxiety. And then you have this temptation to, you know, restrict or do various things to, to, you know, maybe not fuel as well as you should to get down to race weight. So there's this natural inbuilt, you know, traits or characteristics that can be, again, helpful for drive and motivation and, you know, performance even that can also take you sideways. That's right. I never competed at, um, near the level that you did in endurance sports, but in my very modest endurance sports career, I remember that when I was trying to qualify for the Ironman world championships in Kona, um, I was never a very good swimmer. And I was quite a strong biker, so it really came down to the run. And I distinctly remember, this is, I don't know, over 10 years ago, looking at those um, those charts that show like height-to-weight ratio for runners and then trying to find like the ideal height-to-weight. And for someone that's 5'11", apparently that is between 156 and 162 pounds. And um, to give y'all like some perspective right now, I'm pretty lean and I weigh 205. So like my body type is just large, but back then it was, I'm not going to be able to get much faster in the pool. I can't really train any harder, but I can't control this variable. So let me get down to 158. And I did get down to 158. It was 158.5. I can distinctly remember like the measurement on the scale and it seemed normal, but looking back, it's abnormal. Like I tried to pee four times before I weighed myself, like to hit the number so that it could give me this false sense of confidence that like then I was going to have a chance. Um, and what ended up happening is I raced really fast. And then two weeks after I got a stress fracture, <laughs> um, which I think is a really common story. But um, I don't know, you know, it's probably I had some other stuff going on in my life. It's probably a mix of neurochemistry that took me that far, but also saved me from going any farther. Because at that point, I remember just kind of like getting fatigued and being like, all right, you know, I think my race weight's going to be 165 to 170. Um, 
But even there, I distinctly remember the forum Slow Twitch, which used to be huge for triathlon back in the day. There was this saying that you know how to find your race weight. Get as skinny as you can where you have multiple stress fractures, and then your race weight is one pound above what that weight is. So like, yes, it was kind of a joke, but like that, that was the culture back then. And I think things have gotten better in the last decade because there's more awareness of this. Um, but yeah, I wasn't struggling with body image issues. I was happily partnered, you know, at the time she was my girlfriend with a banging hot 10 out of 10 person named Caitlin, who's now my wife. Like I wasn't reading the men's fitness magazines. I don't think there was any body dysmorphia. I think there was like illusion of speed dysmorphia. And this is for me that just wants to get to like an age group podium in triathlon. So I can't imagine what it would be like for someone like you that's trying to do this professionally. Yeah. I mean, I think you're spot on there. And I think, you know, whether it's what's myself or athletes I've coached, like the most difficult part for endurance athletes is often that weight component because, you know, the, the physiology is simple from a standpoint. Like if you drop weight and keep the same power, you're, you're going, going to get to a improve. lot faster. <laughs> yeah, you're going to improve. And fat doesn't give you extra power. So like yeah. the goal is to get as lean as possible, even if that means 5% body fat. Yeah, I mean, I remember in 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 undergrad, you know, with as an exercise science major, I remember one, one class we went through and, and looked at body calipers for measuring fat and, and the bod pod and something like that. And, you know, that was the only time I'd ever had my body fat percentage done and i was at like something like three point something and like there was nothing else extra and i remember this weird thing where you like take pride in that and and then you're just like oh can i push this lower you know because like i'm fine whatever i'm not hurt yet and that's how you judge fine like are you hurt or can you can still compete and that's a really dangerous place to go down and i think that's why you're seeing more recently like discussions on you know weighing athletes body fat percentage because like back when i was competing i mean i'll point blank the some of the best programs in the country would weigh their athletes every week you know in cross country in college not even on the professional side because again there was this idea of you know lower weight faster blah 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 um what they don't talk about is the ramifications that you talked about is like yes that's true in the short term but often what happens is you break um and get injured hurt etc etc but it's a really tricky thing because again i don't think i had any body dysmorphia or anything like that i just saw the number and saw like the not even the number you look around and you see other athletes and you're like well they're real skin and running really fast you look at the elite kenyan athletes and others and it's really difficult and that's just for me it's even more difficult i would say for females um because of again society and cultural things that come into it which puts even more pressure on on them uh, which is unimaginable. So I'm not, again, the point is I'm not surprised by this number because like it's kind of built into the psychology of some of the things that make athletes, you know, uh, drawn to endurance sport and good at them. Uh, well, at the same point, having this double whammy of, Sometimes for a short bit, like you get a little bit faster when you drop weight until it comes back and bites you in the ass. Yeah. And then this leads to another question, which is, is it possible to be a great endurance athlete without having some sort of psychological baggage that comes with it? Because I'm thinking like, if you really want to be at the top of the top and you don't really care about sustainability, but you want to be great for a period of time. And yeah, you do get down to 4% or 5% body fat for a man or maybe 8% to 9% for a woman, you know, outside of maybe a few, and I'm talking like a few in an entire country, people whose genetics just let them sit there, being that lean is not physically healthy. It's not psychologically healthy. Um, yet, like being that lean, if you can do it for a long enough period of time without getting hurt, you are faster. So, like, maybe the answer is what, you know, nutritionist Trent Stelling were to talk about, like, periodizing your nutrition and, like, being okay going there for a short period of time with the help of professionals 
but then being okay immediately putting on additional weight and not kind of sitting there for a long period of time. But even doing that, I feel like you're, you're, you're on, you know, you're walking on eggshells. Yeah, it's tough. You know, I really respect Trent's work on that. And I think that works for certain people. Uh, but it's tough because like, then again, you're putting that obsession on weight, you know, the best thing I ever did as an athlete. And this wasn't until partly through my college career is just stop weighing myself whatsoever. (laughs) And just thinking it will take care of itself because often it does, because what happens you, you lean out a little bit once you start your quote unquote speed work, because you're doing a lot of intensity, right. Which adds to things and, and you take, you, you get down to quote unquote race weight without even thinking about it. Um, That's why as a coach, like as a college coach and even professionally, like I don't think there was ever a single time that I, I weighed somebody um, ever were asked about their weight because I, I think like whether they were a couple pounds or whatever over quote unquote race weight, they were going to run fastest. Like it didn't matter from a, it wasn't worth the risk from a psychological standpoint. So you'd rather have people have like a healthy relationship with food in their body and themselves and let like the training take care of itself, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really good approach. I mean, that certainly is um, my approach now. I haven't weighed myself in ages. Um, And also, we know that weight... Well, let me step back, because it's easy for me to say I'm someone that doesn't struggle with body fatness. So I think that if you have a high proportion of body fatness and you're worried about your health, then a scale can be a really important tool with the help of professionals around you to make sure that you don't go from one extreme to another which is, you know, trying to healthfully lose weight to disordered eating. But assuming that you are someone that has a fairly healthy lean body mass or the inverse of that body fatness, um, then a skill's not really even useful. Like it's, we know that it's far more important to think about waist to height ratio or your blood pressure, uh, for example, in terms of like overall health span, um, but that is something that I'll still pay attention to, which is waist to height. Now it's very different, right? Like I'm training to get as strong as possible. So if anything, I'm on the side of now getting big and I'm worried about like not being able to eventually come back down to a healthier weight when I know I won't be able to sustain this level of muscle. So, you know, me at 5'11", 205 right now is fine because I can train real hard, but I don't think at age 65 being 205 is going to be the same body composition. So I just try to like, keep an eye on how my pants fit, to be honest. And as long as that waist to height ratio is like less than 50%, then I'm fine. Um, even though I'm putting on a fair amount of weight, I know this because I have, I, man, you'd be so proud of me. I had to cut my shorts with a scissor a little bit at the very bottom the other day because my quads were just too big. It was a peak peak moment for me, man. There we go. I, I really think what it gets at is, you know, some of the same things we talked about outside of exercises, like what's the point, what's the goal and don't let the numbers like drive the thing, right? Like the numbers are feedback. Like, and if that feedback is no longer being useful, then why are you tracking it? And that's how it was for me with like, wait, like, is it useful in any way? Nope. Not at all. It doesn't like tell me anything. It just drives me nuts. So I'm not going to track it. Like the same could be said for sleep trackers. Is it helpful in helping you get more sleep? Great. Like use it. But often at some point, then it becomes negative because it's like telling you, it's giving you anxiety because you're worried about getting that 100% sleep score or whatever mumbo jumbo it is. So stop tracking it. Right. And I I think there's a nice little balance between that. The same with how many miles per week do you run? Like for for a while, like that was helpful for me. Right now, I couldn't tell you whatsoever because it's like it doesn't matter to me. It's not helpful. This is a topic that I take on in Master of Change, the upcoming book. And not just for tools, but even more broadly for like obsession around pursuits themselves. So like Ultra running is an example. And um, uh, the way that I analyzed the research on this and then did some reporting, the conclusion that I came to is basically like you have to ask, is this a net positive on my life right now? 
and be willing for that answer to change over time. So the extreme example that I use in the book, because I think extremes just like really help paint these concepts, is if you are someone that just suffered um, a tragic loss in your life. So you had a romantic partner pass away, or you went through a divorce that really felt like a big loss, or like, God forbid, you lost a child. Um, just unimaginable pain and, and loss. Any way you can cope and survive short of becoming addicted to opioids or methamphetamines is good. And I think that you can use obsession in things like work or sport is a bridge to come off of trauma without falling into addiction or self-harm. But then at a certain point, what was once actually a net benefit on your life becomes a net harm. So the example is someone that goes through a really terrible divorce that loses their sense of self, that feels like life is meaningless, that might be considering self-harm, finds marathon running. And they throw themselves into marathon running at what from the outside looks like an extremely unhealthy level. But for that person, it is the most healthy thing they can do because the alternative is spiraling into depression or substance abuse. But then five, eight, nine years later, whatever it is, that person, thanks to their obsession with running, starts to get their footing and starts to build a new life. And then the relationship with running often does become unhealthy versus the alternative. So the ultimate tool I think here is psychological flexibility, which at its simplest just says like, is this helpful right now? And for some people at some junctures of their life, becoming obsessed with endurance sports or with work or with art, you name it, is helpful. And it might be helpful forever, but then later on, it's not. And this is why I'm so remiss to judge anyone that's obsessed with ultra-endurance sports, because later you find out that they're in recovery for opioids. And it's like, yeah, your lifestyle is really different than mine, but you know, running hundreds of miles in a community and not seeking and using illicit drugs, that's a trade-off that is a good one, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think what it gets down to is like... <laughs> something that we also talked about in a past book passion paradox is like you know it's sticking your head above water every once in a while and being like am i is this thing still bringing me in the right direction or am i drifting you know far off course of what i thought this was going to do so in the case of the running example is like is this filling that void or gap that is healthy for me? Is this a healthy way to fill that void in or gap instead of, you know, being addicted to opioids or whatever it is, you know? Um, And having that self-awareness to check in every once in a while and ask that question, like you said, is, uh, is enormous. Because often what I said, again, to bring this around, this isn't just running. It could be anything. It could be your an entrepreneur and you're like, you know, obsessed and you, you move fast and break things until that gets in the way and you break everything, including your marriage or kids or life or what have you, because like you don't, aren't able to step back and be like, Oh, like, it's not just about making my dollars or selling this company or what have you, that single-minded focus gets gets in the way. And I've, I've seen this with myself. Like I think growing up, I had a, a very, um, a good ability that allowed me to achieve at a high level to like just be single-mindedly focused on something, which is great, but it also can kind of get in the way and, and has got, had gotten in the way of like, well, it, you start neglecting other things in your life. So you have to essentially have that psychological flexibility to understand like, am I going in a positive direction that I'm okay with or am I not? And if I'm not, do I have the ability to kind of flip that switch and turn this thing off? I mean, the other example I like to give uh, to kind of get this idea is the idea of competitiveness. Generally, we think of competitiveness as like a good trait. But if you can't flip it off, flip that switch off and you're competing with your, you know, eight year old son in in, I don't know, checkers to the same degree that you did on the football field or at, in the race, like that can be a problem. Right. And the best athletes generally, you know, can flip it off. I was watching the uh, the show quarterbacks, which follows some NFL quarterbacks during it. And there was this wonderful scene with Patrick Mahomes 
where he essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing, he's like, you know, after the game, as soon as I, 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 I see my family, I've got to flip that switch and be family first, no matter if I won or lost that game. Like I'd be, got to be there with my, my children and wife and not be like ruminating on the loss or, you know, celebrating the win. And I think that's such a refreshing, you know, look at having that psychological flexibility and training it instead of, you know, letting the thing that makes Mahomes great competing seep into I'm always competing and therefore I'm going to kind of be miserable <laughs> because I can't flip that switch off. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, it is flexibility um, to a, to a T the, the ability to ask those questions like, is this working? Is this not? When is this working? When is this not? You know, Steve, what would it take for you to flip the switch back on? So maybe when HGM starts sleeping a little bit better, Maybe you and Hillary come out to Asheville. You love it. You say, you know, imagine the growth equation, co-located operation. It's temperate here. You don't have to deal with the heat. You don't have to deal with whatever your governor's name is. And y'all come down to Asheville. And now suddenly you've got great trails. You've got great temperatures. You've got a great support staff and me and Caitlin. You know, what would it take for you to want to train hard again like can we see steve the master's athlete let's be real more than half of the growth equations global audience would care more about this than anything we do like is steve going to make a comeback i it's just not meaningful for me i think that's the pro that's the problem like running the meaning of running has changed for me it's no longer about competing um and i think i think that's for twofold I think one, it's because, you know, I had this moment a couple years ago when I was a college coach and I wasn't in the best shape. And I've told this story before, but I remember getting, I got drafted into, essentially we did this kind of relay race and someone got sick. I got drafted into the last minute. I hadn't been training. I hadn't done anything hard and I had really low expectations, but like I beat those expectations and competed really well for essentially being very out of shape for myself. What was, was it a 400 or an 800 or a mile? So it's this relay race where we teamed up and it was essentially a two man four by eight. So you run at 800, you hand off to your teammate, you run at 800, you hand off to your teammate. We ended up winning. What did not, you split? Not thanks to me. I God, I can't remember. I, I my first one, I was conservative. I split like two eleven ish, and then my second one, I split like two oh seven ish. Okay, and again, and this I is had, on no training. This is on no training. Like the, the day the day before, I did one four hundred in sixty two, and said, "Okay, I can do this." Um. But the reason I was, again, it's, it, for me, that isn't fast, but it, I wasn't in shape. I hadn't done any training. But it, it, what it came to me and the lesson I tried to pass on to the athletes is, man, I got everything out of myself that day. Like there wasn't an ounce left. And there were pictures. Like I'm lying on the ground because like I was literally dead. And I went home. I didn't work the rest of the day. I was dead. Um, but I had this moment where I'm like, you know, I had this realization where I'm like, you know what? I'm really freaking good at getting everything out of myself. And that's all I cared about. Like I figured out how to do that. And, and because of that, like the, you know, well, as a master's athlete running X time or X this, does that matter? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't have any meaning to me. Now, maybe when I turn 40 and Someone holds a shiny object and says, "Hey, come win this meaningless master's but that's what championship." I, but, but that's what I mean, and I don't necessarily think the meaning is in the master's trophy or even the thirty-eight-year-old trophy. But like, you don't have any inclination just to go through the. And, and I would never counsel you to do it at the mile. I think there's just too much trauma in your past there. But like, and I want to be careful. I say that somewhat sarcastically. I know that there actually is probably a lot of like shit associated with the mile, but it's not real trauma. But like throwing yourself into the process of trying to run a real fast half marathon or marathon and going through the training and like taking the tools that you've learned that you didn't have when you were young and trying to run a fast distance race just doesn't appeal to you, huh? No. You're nodding your head like, no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this sounds really weird 
And a lot, I've gotten this question more than anything because I've never run a marathon myself. And everyone's like, well, you got to do it. You got to check that box. You got to do this. And, you know, to me, I'm, I'm like, it's not, it's not a, a challenge. But and we I can make it a challenge. What, what if we do this? What if you just run a marathon with no training, like as an exhibition? <laughs> I mean, that would even be more fun for me. <laughs> I mean, that would maybe that would be the challenge is run a marathon off no training and see what you can do. Um, I'd probably be broken afterwards. Um, so that might be the downside. But what I mean by no challenge is it just doesn't interest me. And I think for, for most of my life, because like, it just, I don't know. It just, it's, it's something like, you know, if I wanted to run a fast marathon, I could have done it and rolled over and done it, you know, waking up any day of the week and run decently fast. And I just don't have any desire or goal to like maximize or hit a PR or like run something fast because like it doesn't matter anymore. And I'm not saying for some, I totally get it. Like at one point in my life, it mattered a whole heck of a lot. And I understand it. And if you're a 40 year old master saying like, I want a PR more power to you, man. Like, I think that's great. It can be extremely healthy because it gives you some goals and something that to, to latch onto. But I'm reminded of something that our, our friend um, who was on the podcast, who said this, Ryan Holiday said essentially like, I don't, I'm paraphrasing again. You can go back and listen to his podcast interview, you know, gosh, probably a year ago. But he said, uh, you know, I don't compete at my hobbies. Yeah, I'm not trying to win at my hobby yeah, was the exact go. quote. Good on you, Brad. Better memory than you. That's why you're, than me. That's why you're the younger one. But like, I, I think that's, and I think, you know, I see running as more of a hobby now where I enjoy it, where I, I get to go out and run in the park. The other day, I, I ran a couple miles with some high school kids who, you know, were running low six minute miles, which most of the time I just go out and trot seven minute miles. But it was a lot of fun because I'm like, oh, high school kids, let's talk, let's talk running. You know, I'm an old man with wisdom, maybe. But Do they it, know it, you. Are you legendary in the suburbs of Houston? Are they like, there's Magnus? Yeah, I mean, they knew me. Yeah, they were, they were like, you know, they're like, we've heard so many stories. And I'm like, okay. So it's always weird, but it reminds me. you know you're old. Yeah. No, <laughs> when I'm, the high schoolers are like, there's Magnus. And I, I got to be careful because I'm like, you know, it's easy to fall into old man mode where you're like, yeah, back in the day when I ran in this park, like, you know, it wasn't paved and there were blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, chill out, old man. Um, but it, it just reminds but I love doing that and it kind of cements. I'm like, these guys are in it for competing and more power to them. I think that's great. But like, you know, when I train with them, it's not, or I run a couple miles with them. It's not like, oh, like maybe I should run with these high school kids all summer and get in shape, which I could, but it does, it just doesn't appeal to me. Yeah, there you have it. So it's a firm no. I'm sorry, everybody. We're not going to be able to get Steve on the uh, competitive training bandwagon. Maybe you do it in strength sports. I I just don't. Yeah, maybe. I just don't have the interest. Like, I think part of it, too, is like the amount of time it would take to do it. Yeah, that's right? why strength sports are a little bit easier is because like true. you just you can't train as much. Yeah, that's true. Like if if you have decent, I mean, you can all more is more. But like, you know, if the 95-5 rule in running takes you to like, including cross training and whatnot, takes you to like 14 hours a week, plus you need massage, then in strength training, like five by one hour a week, solid. And anything after that, at our age, if you're training hard, you're like tinkering with injury. Now you can go into the gym and train for three hours because you're talking the whole time, Um but it doesn't like the stimulus needed for strength is just a lot different. That's that, true. That, I mean, I, like I said, I don't want to compare because it's apples to oranges. I was never nearly is in a different stratosphere from your talent in endurance sports. But I really quit for two reasons. One was my body type, and I kept getting injured, and I was hitting a wall where I couldn't get faster without getting leaner, and I kept getting injured. And then I also had this exertional compartment syndrome that my calf just like doesn't want me to run. Eventually I had surgery for it, but even then when I run, it still hurts, but at least I can hike now. Um, but then the other big reason, even beside all that, is I remember like this happened around the time we had Theo and I'm just like, it's just too, too time consuming and too exhausting. 
Like, I'm, it takes a lot of time. I'm quite tired. And I'm always a little bit nervous that I'm going to get hurt. And that's not the state of being that I want to have for my wife and my baby. Um, and then I like, but I still want to stay active. And I do like the the progress that came with running, even though it always got derailed by injury. So like, let me go back to what my body was actually good at in high school and strength train. And I do think the biggest benefit of strength training is like, an hour a day, five days a week. And like, I, I mean, I sound like a broken record, but any more is very marginal, if that. Now, the challenge with strength training where it's different is it's a lot harder, I think, to do in the way that you do running. Like, it's harder to just show up to the gym and be like, I'm just going to lift today. Cause it's like, well, what are you going to? It's just a lot easier to be reckless that way without like a methodical program to follow. Whereas in running, like you have your base fitness. So I guess you go to the gym and be like, I'm just going to squat 225, you know, for five by five or whatever it is. But then like, there's not a real stimulus, but whereas in running, you can kind of like ratchet it up and feel fine in strength training. I feel like you ratchet it up and the precipice before like injury and not is just, um, we've talked about this. It's more like sprinting, yeah. like feeling really smooth to going hard. It's like a very, like you cross over that line fast. You can't let it come to you. Like you can in an endurance sport. Exactly. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe endurance sports are just like easier too to have a relationship with where like you can kind of self-regulate for a very long time. Whereas in strength training, you're kind of either like running nine minute pace or you're going pretty hard. There's just fewer in between zones, at least that I've found. I'm sure yeah. more, talent, more talented athletes probably have those zones. I don't. Yeah. There's more nuance, the more, the better you get on on most of this stuff. But I, I think that's a good point. And if I look at my current running relationship, I mean, essentially it's jog a mile to the park. And if I feel like crap, I just keep jogging <laughs> till I get to like 40, 45 minutes and I'm done. But if I feel good after that mile, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do something hard. Like let's do a fart lick in the park or like a short tempo run or every once in a while, you know, to kind of see how how I'm at, I'll go run a mile in, in five minutes or a little bit under and, and judge how difficult it is and be like, okay, I'm in a good spot or not. And I think that flexibility to not have that today I'm a, I need to do X workout and lift this much is, is a good spot. Love it. All right. Well, last thing before we wrap up today, cause we meandered a little bit, but, um, hot take. So on the internet, um, this cat named Brady Homer, who's a young up-and-comer, I believe he's a PhD in like metabolic science. I think he's a really thoughtful dude. He tweeted a picture of Lance Armstrong just looking absolutely jacked, rucking, uh, which is carrying a heavy backpack in hot weather with Peter Atia, and um, basically said like Lance is probably, I, I don't want to misquote, but speculated that Lance is probably on TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. But then went on to say that perhaps most 50 to 60-year-old guys should be on TRT. And of course, this lit up the internet because one, it's Lance Armstrong and performance-enhancing drugs. And then two, it's a pretty strong normative statement for someone that's really thoughtful to make. And Brady said as much in subsequent tweets. But um, Steve and I, we looked into the research on this and it's a pretty nuanced topic when you think about it. So a couple of things. Number one, cheating in sport is unacceptable. If you compete in a sport that bans supplemental testosterone and you take supplemental testosterone, you are unethical, you are cheating. And if you deny it and ruin people's lives in its wake, then you are a narcissistic sociopath. So let's get that out of the way. Thing number two, if you are not competing in sanctioned sports, ought you be taking TRT? And here, I think it's a little bit more complex. Ultimately, I think the answer is still no, because it's like, if you're not, I don't, it's more logical to take it if you are competing and cheating and at least trying to earn a paycheck. But if you're not, it's like, what's the point? Because then you start taking it and you're still not as good as you want to be. So then you go to the next drug. I think the real interesting argument, and we looked into this, the evidence a little bit, and there's just not much out there, would be does it make sense to supplement with testosterone or HGH for 80-year-old men? So not for 55-year-old dudes that want to feel 40, but for, and perhaps women, I don't know the hormone profile of women as well, but is a way to reduce frailty and falls, which falls in particular, which is 
tied at the hip, no pun intended with frailty, tend to be one of the biggest causes of decline and eventual death in older people. And um, I think that that is an interesting conversation to have. My gestalt is that the answer is no, because uh, geriatric medicine doctors and researchers have probably looked at this. It's like not too novel of idea. And they probably came up with a cost benefit that was not in favor of HGH for older men. But it's, but it's interesting, and then I'll shut up. I do think that, like, especially on Twitter, and it probably has to say something about Twitter's demographic, or I guess now X, it's almost become, like, normalized for 40- to 50-year-old people to talk about, like, anti-aging therapies and TRT and HGH as if these things didn't have all sorts of side effects, both physiological and psychological and cognitive. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think the, the most interesting thing there to me is the normalization (laughs) is i think we see testosterone replacement as like oh like lots of people do it all these bros on twitter do it like it's okay when reality is i looked into this a little bit you know a couple years ago the fda put out a warning saying like hey like we don't have good long-term conclusive data like we get it people are using essentially off-label testosterone for older people and aging, but like we need to be more careful with this. Um, and that led people to, there was a 2021 review that essentially looked at the evidence for risk and benefits. And, you know, it's a lot more inconclusive and a lot more unknown than we actually realize. I mean, even the the idea you said there, like redu- reduce ball risks. And in that review, they classified reduced bone fracture risk as insufficient data or inconclusive evidence of efficacy right now. So even the thing that we probably use it for, for old people, like the, the research just isn't there yet. And, you know, it, it, in that reply to that one, I just want to say one more, one of the eminent uh, sports science researchers, Stu Phillips said no really good concluded no really good evidence per improved health in any dimension with longer term hgh or trt in aging men unless folks are gh deficient or hypogonadal meaning they don't they have a really low uh testosterone um and need it actually to be supplemented and i think it's it's worth pointing that out because it's not like we're looking down on if if trt or whatever works or helps for aging great um but the data just isn't there compared to, I think, the excessive use on um, on social media and with with tech bros. With the with the exception of hypogonadism, um, yes. But again, even that window, I feel like, is shifting because now people are like, "Well, normal's not good. Normal is just like what American men have," and. Um, I think that then you get into like, so we're going to look at normal rates amongst the X bros that are all, it's crazy if it Twitter's X, the X bros that are all taking testosterone. That's probably not a good normal either. Um, I saw Stu Phillips' response. This is one of the good things about X is that, you know, you can get into a conversation like this and you've got the smartest people in the world on these topics weighing in. Um, I also sent that tweet in our responses to um, a friend of mine that's an ICU doctor. Because another use case that my brain came up with is there's something called ICU syndrome, which is basically when you are on a ventilator and you're not moving and you're in the ICU and you're not getting the kind of nutrition that you need, um, your whole body can get into a really catabolic state where it's breaking down. And I asked about the use of anabolic steroids in those situations. And um, he said that like there are rare instances when the benefit outweighs the cost but injecting a potent hormone into someone that's that sick tends to trigger more negative effects than positive. Um, so like, I guess even in those two instances, it just doesn't seem like there's enough research muster there. What it will do is if you're an otherwise healthy to 50 or 60-year-old that trains hard, is it'll get you jacked. And it will also lead to, according to research, not Steve and I's opinion here, um, increased risk tolerance. Uh, potentially poor decision-making as a result of that increased risk tolerance, um, increased anger and anxiety. So it's not necessarily a a free lunch. So I think that we come down on the opposite side of Brady, that um, most men in their 50s and 60s should not be taking supplemental testosterone. 
Yeah, I mean, I just go where the data goes. And again, just I want to just make this clear. Like, Stu Phillips, the reason we reference him is he responded, which is really cool. But, like, literally, he is one of the guys on skeletal muscle health. <laughs> like, one of the main researchers who... Yeah, him and Keith Barr, who's, yep. who, who also was responding, yeah. It, exactly. So, like, this is this is why Twitter slash X is, is, can be great. Um and, and, you know, I, I think that's, I, I think often what happens is these things get hyped without understanding the, the kind of nuance or repercussions or, or what have you. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of it, if we were to really look on it, is probably like also kind of vanity and insecurity of like having to go through the aging process and not dealing with it. I mean, I'm, I don't know Lance Armstrong well, I'm, know him well enough and interacting with him, you know, several times a decade ago. But like, I would bet like his, his personality is more of, I'm using this to feel young and to train hard and to feel good about myself versus like health. So my, my conjecture. Yeah, there you have it. Um, I'm right there with you, Steve. Um, good. I'm glad that we could hit that up because, uh, that definitely got a lot of people's attention on uh, on the internet. All right. Well, there you go. There's our podcast for today. If you enjoyed this, like, subscribe, share with your friends. We appreciate you listening. And if you haven't yet, go pre-order Brad's new book, Master of Change. You won't regret it. You know what? Let's make a bet, Steve. If my book is in the top five New York Times bestsellers. So for those that are out there, hitting the list is a long shot. Top five is a super long shot. Will you train for a half marathon? I don't know, Brad. Why would I want to do that? So you don't. So the answer is no. I'm just I'm just trying to make it more fun. I'm trying to I'm trying to inject some fun into this. You know, the last half marathon, the only half marathon I did, I tore my Achilles in the last mile. So would you get a tattoo? No. Would you move to Asheville? That's not up to me. Fuck, man. Steve is no fun. We're signing off. We'll catch you all next Wednesday. Wednesday.